We've been uh, doing this series at looking at the gospel, and you thought I wrapped it up. But actually, I have a PS today. Um, <laughs> next week is going to be Neil Martin, next two weeks. And then after that, we're going to start a series on the book of Daniel. So, uh, but today, we are going to Mark chapter 14. Uh, we're going to look at the gospel and failure. You are looking at a failure. I have failed in so many ways throughout my whole life. And I know that I'm looking at also people who have failed. And I think I can tell when a person really understands the gospel, when a community understands the gospel by how they handle failure. And today we're going to look at Peter and his failure. So let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word, something we like to do around here. I'm going to begin reading at uh, verse 27. Uh, let me just give you just a little context before we start reading. This is the last night before Jesus is crucified, and there's, there's two threads that are uh, being woven through chapter 14. The first thread, of course, is Jesus, the disciples, the Last Supper, and then uh, Gethsemane and Jesus' arrest and his trial. The other thread is the thread of Peter. And that's the thread that we're going to look at. So verse 27, Jesus talking to his disciples at that last meal. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And here's Peter being Peter. Even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you, Peter, will betray me, disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, I will die with you. I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And now I'll go down to verse 66. Actually, let's do 65 for some context. Then some began to spit on Jesus. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below, where he could watch all this. In the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself by the fire, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But Peter denied it. I don't know or understand what you are talking about, he said. And he went then into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And Peter began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately, the rooster crowed the second time, 
And Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll betray me three times. And Peter broke down and he wept. This is God's word. You can be seated. So like I said, uh, the text here, Mark, who's writing this gospel, he wants to place Peter and Jesus side by side because both of them are on trial. Both of them are being questioned. Both of them have their life on the line. Both are being asked this question, who are you? Who are you? Who's Peter? I mean, just from our text, look at verse 29. Peter says, hey, all the other disciples may fall away, but I'm not going to betray you, Jesus. And then in verse 31, he says, Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I'll die with you. That's a pretty big promise that Peter is making. But his whole life is built on this promise to Jesus. He's given up everything to follow him, to be true to him at all costs. So, we didn't read this, but when the Romans then come to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? Does he run? Uh Uh-uh. He's ready. He pulls out his little knife. Let's go. He is ready to die with Jesus. But just moments later, Verse 71, I never knew that man. So who's Peter? Is Peter the person of verse 31, or is he the person of verse 71? And you know what? We all in our lives have things that could fall under verse 31. And we all also have things in our lives that could fall under verse 71. Who are you? Who, Who am I? And see, Peter going back and forth from, from verse 31 to verse 71 is something we see throughout his life. Uh, that time when, when Jesus asked his disciples, okay, guys, you've been with me for some time. Who do you say that I am? And Peter just right away says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, wow, I like that. But just moments later, Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. Those are dangerous words that are coming out of your mouth. Or I think the scene that so typifies uh, Peter in, in, in this regard is that night when the disciples are all in a boat and they're battling this storm and they're, they're just out there for hours and they're, they're utterly defeated. They're starting to feel hopeless and all of a sudden Jesus just shows up, walks right past them on the lake. Hey guys, what's up? You know, it's almost like, whoa, okay? And, and they don't know if it's a ghost, but when Peter finally realizes Jesus, if that's you, would you ask me to walk to you? And see, we take this as, oh, that's cool, walking on water. So Peter's like, can I do that cool thing that you can do? 
But actually, Peter's question um, brings us right into the world of what a disciple was in the first century. A disciple is someone who found a rabbi and gave everything up so they could walk after that rabbi so that they could walk just like that rabbi. Live like them. Become like them. And so what Peter's really asking Jesus in this moment, like, Jesus, I left everything to walk after you, to learn to walk like you. Does this whole thing apply to right now? And Jesus says, come, Peter. And Peter gets out of the boat. The other 11 are just sitting in there, but not Peter. Peter's the one who gets out of the boat, and he trusts, and he walks on water. But as quickly as he is that faithful, he's that faithless. And he begins to sink. And that, in a nutshell, is Peter's life. So much faith. But then all of a sudden, botching it up, and in the very next moment, failing miserably. It's my life. It's your life. And, and, and now we come to this, this text today, which might be one of the biggest moments in Peter's life, a night that has already been so horrific. Jesus has been arrested. All of the disciples have, have fled. They're in hiding, but not Peter. Uh-uh. Peter's like, I'm not leaving him. Peter is still hanging around. Peter's still following at a distance. Peter's still watching everything that's happening to Jesus. And, 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 and know this. He loves Jesus. He's given up everything to follow him. All his hopes, all his dreams have been staked in this man. And then it happens. And I don't know if it's what we read in verses 64 and 65, all of a sudden, he sees how they are just beating Jesus to a pulp. It's like, oh, is this going to happen to me? And then the, this teenage girl, this, she's just a teenager. She has no status. She's a slave. She says, you're with him, aren't you? And it starts with just a simple denial. Peter says, no, I, I, I don't know. A little bit later, she says, I know you're with him. And Peter gets a little bit more emphatic. He's now going down the slippery slope. Nothing can stop him. He says, no, not with him. And then the third time when he's questioned, the text literally reads, Peter started to curse and the direct object of his curse is Jesus. So really what Peter is saying is, damn him, I don't know him. No disciple would ever betray their rabbi this way. And if you understand the, the, the rabbi-disciple relationship in the first century, well, let me just put it this way. A disciple called his rabbi my father, and a rabbi called his disciple my true son. 
This is the the best father-son relationship. And Jesus just said, damn him, I, I don't know him. And Luke gives us a detail in his account of this. He says, and Jesus looked right at Peter. Almost as if to say, Peter, what do you mean you don't know me? And then Peter went out and he wept. He wept. Now, before we unpack Peter's failure, I wonder today how many of us understand the importance or the power that comes from being able to make promises and keep promises. Because right now, we live in a world that prides itself on making no promises to anyone or anything, let alone keeping those promises. And in my opinion, we've run into some pretty scary stuff with that. Because making promises and keeping promises, it's the whole basis to having a community which is why there's so little community in our world today, is because people no longer can make promises and keep promises. I mean, it's, it's, it's the basis of relationship. Look at verse 31. I mean, what Peter says, Jesus, I'll die for you. That's the stuff of what relationships are, are made of. You can't be a friend if you can't make commitment, that kind of commitment. You can't be a husband or a wife unless you're making promises and you're putting a stake in the ground to keep those promises. I mean, I think of Crossroads, this church. A lot of you guys don't know this, but this church, because of difficult stuff that we ran into our first year, this church shouldn't be around right now. It shouldn't. I, I think about this all the time. But for the grace of God. And for people who are in this room right now, who were true, who were true to this church, true to this community, They remain faithful. I mean, I'd love to have them stand right now, but I'm not. But the many owe a lot to those few. And that's that's the basis of community. It's it's the basis of of, of relationship. Uh, When when I look at my marriage, the, the thing that holds Libby and I together, it's not the stuff that Hollywood puts before you. It's that... I made a promise to her, she made a promise to me, and we are staking our lives on keeping that promise. And let me tell you, the stuff then that flows out of that is a lot better than anything Hollywood could present to you. And I can even make this more personal. Unless we can make promises and keep promises, we're not gonna have an identity. We're not gonna know who we really are. Because ask yourself, who is Peter? Is Peter the person in verse 31? Or is Peter the person of verse 71? And tell me, how how does Peter know? Or when you're the kind of person in verse 31, and you're like, yep, that's who I am. 
I'll die with you. I'll do this. I'm that. I'll be there for you. But then all of a sudden, the stuff of 71 shows up. And you're like, who am I? Am I this person or am I that person? I've told you before, I used to be a youth pastor for the first 10 years of my time in ministry. So I've worked with hundreds of students and one of the things that used to drive me crazy and would happen more often than I liked is, is when a student would come to me and they would say, uh, Rod, I just gotta go find myself. Because I, I, I knew what they meant when they, when they said that. They, they knew that, I knew that they were saying, okay, I need to get rid of all responsibility, all my commitments, all my beliefs, all my obligations, and I need to embark on this, on this journey of, of being true to my emotions and true to my feelings and true to my desires. And in doing that, they think they're going to gain an identity, but they're really destroying it. Because if all that we really are, if our identity is the sum total of our feelings, desires, and emotions, I mean, just think about how fickle our feelings are, how fickle our emotions are. One day we feel that, the next day we feel the complete opposite. One day we're, we're, we're desiring this, and the next day we're desiring that. I mean, they're all over the place. Sometimes they contradict each other. Sometimes they conflict with each other. Oftentimes they're warring against each other, and they, all they do is they just split us apart. Tell you what binds us together. It's not our feelings. It's not our emotions. It's not our desires. What forms and shapes a person's identity is the promises we make and the promises we keep and our integrity in that, integrity. And integrity is not something that we talk about much these days. It's a, it's, it, it, it's, it's a lost virtue. But integrity comes from this mathematical term, integer. Integer is a whole number as opposed to a fraction. Because that's exactly what integrity is. It's, it, it's, it's the quality that allows us to be whole. Instead of broken up into all these pieces and parts and where we're just fractured and formless. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's one of my heroes, who living during, a German who lived during uh, Nazi Germany, escaped Nazi Germany, um, as a pastor to come to America because everything that was going on in Germany, but then was so convicted, what am I doing in America? I need to be back with my people in the chaos. And so he returns, and he's eventually put into a concentration camp. And while in a concentration camp where he will eventually die, he writes his thoughts, his feelings, which is in a book today called Letters and Papers from Prison. It's just this raw, authentic expression of his heart. And uh, one of the things that he writes in this, while he's in this concentration camp, he says, we Germans have grown up with the experience of our parents and grandparents that a man can and must plan, develop, and shape his own life. That life has a purpose about which a man must make up his mind and which he must then purpose with all his strength. But uh-uh, that's not the case, he says. We have now learned by experience that we cannot even plan for the coming day because our life, in contrast to that of our parents and grandparents, has become formless 
and even fragmentary. But I like what he says next. He says, but in spite of that, I can only say that I have no wish to live in any other time than our own, even though it is so inconsiderate of our outward well-being, because we realize more clearly than formerly that the world lies under the wrath and grace of God. For thus saith the Lord, behold, what I have built up, I'm breaking down. What I have planted, I am plucking up. And do not then seek great things for yourself. Seek them not. Behold, I'm bringing evil upon all flesh. But I will give your life as a prize in all the places you go. While Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life was a prize. But when he talks about a different world, we can't even plan for the next day how our lives have become formless and fragmentary. I'm thinking he's describing our world today, our country right now has become formless and fragmentary. It's split apart, our communities, our families, marriages, even our own selves. People are formless and fragmentary. They're split apart. I'll tell you why. A high school girl summed it up best. I'll never forget her statement. She says, I belong to the blank generation I have no beliefs, I have no commitments, I belong to no community, tradition, or anything like that. I'm lost in this vast, vast world. I belong nowhere. I have absolutely no identity. And I say, of course you can't have an identity. If you can't make commitments and be true to those commitments, you're gonna be formless, fragmentary, Split apart all these fractions. And see, unless you and I can be people who can make commitments and be true to these commitments, we will never have an idea of who we really are. And our life will just unravel and fall apart. And that's exactly what's happening to Peter. His life is unraveling. It's, it, it, it's falling apart because... He broke his promise. Now Mark's gospel, I find this very interesting, gives us the most detail into Peter's failure of all the other gospels. Until I realized that Mark is a disciple of Peter. In fact, Mark is writing everything down that Peter wants him to say and so think about this. In other words, Peter wants all this detail to go through Mark into Mark's gospel in regards to Peter's failure. And what's the reason for that? Because this isn't the end of the story for Peter. Peter wants us to see his, his enormous failure because you could make the argument all the way, already by the time you get to Acts, which is just a few weeks after this failure, Peter's an utterly changed man. And then you could make the argument that Peter becomes maybe the greatest leader in the whole Christian movement. And I'm gonna even push this further Peter doesn't just become the greatest leader in spite of this failure, but Peter becomes the greatest leader because of it. 
Because here's what we learn throughout the Bible is how God can work with failure, how God uses failure. He uses failure to break us so that he can remake us into Peters and into Pauls and into Davids and into Moses. All the characters, the Bible, you look at them, if you're going to them to think that they give us all these wonderful moral examples, you're wrong. They fail, and they fail, and they fail. And you get to see how God uses that failure. I love it because I have also seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my own marriage. Um, I mean, I could point to stuff in the last week. I'm just like, Rod, are you kidding me? Who are you, man? Are you really that? Are you this? Who are you? Now, what Peter shows us is how God can also uh, use our failure and how he can use our failure to change us and, and, and to turn that into into greatness. Um, there's a prescription here for complete inside-out change as we look at Peter. The first thing that Peter does is he owns up to his failure, all of it. Look at verse 72. He went out and he wept. Why is he weeping? He knows what he's done. It's, he's cut to the heart. He's owning it. And, and this might be the first time in Peter's life where he's a broken man, where he's broken to the core, because my guess is that Peter's whole identity at this moment is wrecked uh, at, at the moment of his failure because of his failure. Because I think before Peter's failure, I think Peter deep down viewed himself as better. <laughs> I'm better. I'm better than everybody. I'm the best disciple you have, Jesus. These guys might all fall away, not me. These guys might d deny you, not me. I'll die for you, Jesus. And see, what you see in that is this person who's still filled with self-righteousness and, and self-importance. And I think Peter fails at a level that even exceeds what he thought he was capable but see, it's because of his failure that he can no longer in his mind now think of himself as the best. I'm the best promise keeper. No. You're the chief of sinners. You're the greatest failure. That'll shatter anyone's pride. And see, I think Peter now is starting to realize that he can't save himself by being the best, by being the most of this or having all of this. And oftentimes, failure is the only thing that will shatter a person of their self-righteousness and their self-importance. And I'm going to say this. If this is the only thing you hear this morning, change can only begin to happen in a person's life when they have the guts and the humility to acknowledge the full extent of their failure. When you fail, how do you treat it? Does it destroy you? Does it debilitate you? Does this failure kind of send you in this tailspin where, where for weeks or, or months or maybe even years, you're, you're just constantly beating yourself up, flagellating yourself? 
Or do you look at your failure and just try to make light of it, sweep it under the rug, try to rationalize it away. Ah, I fail, but everybody fails. I had a guy years ago who came to me. His boys were starting to get older, approaching their teenage years. He came clean on his whole life. He had a whole other life on the other side of the state. You talk about promise breaking. He was doing it every weekend. But he said, right, here's my problem. I don't have a conscience. I didn't really know what to say to that. I really thought God put something in my mind. I said, pray for him. Ask God, God, give me a conscience. He came back to me a month later, sat in my office and just wept. His body was shaking. And he said, Rod, God answered my prayer. He said, I am so disgusted with myself, I can't even look in the mirror. When's the last time you've been so broken over your own failure? what Peter does. It's the first thing. The second thing uh, Peter does is because just owning it and, and, and acknowledging it isn't going to change us. But it's a great first step. We need somewhere we can bring it. Like, where, where do we bring our failure? I mean, how does our world treat failure? Our f- world treats failure the same way we oftentimes treat failure. We either beat people up because they failed or We act like it's no big deal or we just rationalize it away. What Peter does with his failure is he he plunges it into the grace of Jesus. Or better yet, Jesus takes Peter and just kind of plunges him in his grace. And when I look at this story and I I look at how Jesus treats a broken person, it's, it's stunningly beautiful. A bruised reed, Jesus will not break. In fact, this starts way before even Peter's denial. This this verse in Luke 22, verse 31, this detail where Jesus at the night of their dinner before the betrayal, Jesus says to Peter, 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 Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. Jesus is already praying for him, telling him that he's praying for him. I know you're going to fail, Peter. I'm praying for you. In fact, praying there is the word interceding. This is, this is more than a prayer. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I'm standing in the gap on behalf of you like a priest. In fact, intercession is even more than that. I'm standing in, in, in your place. And see, then when you read Mark 14 this way and, and you look at the threat of Peter alongside the threat of Jesus, this is exactly what we see Jesus is standing in Peter's place because here's Peter, the ultimate promise breaker, warming himself by the fire and walking away scotch-free. And here is Jesus, the ultimate, ultimate promise keeper, getting beaten and tortured and sentenced to die 
because everything that Peter deserved as a promise keeper is placed on Jesus, and everything that Jesus deserved as a promise keeper is placed on Peter, and that's the gospel. That Jesus takes upon himself everything that we deserve because of our failures. He takes it. He takes it all. And everything that Jesus deserves as this righteous, beautiful, perfect person is placed on us. I'm interceding for you, Peter. I'm standing in the gap on behalf of you, Peter. I'm standing in your place, Peter. And see, this is why Peter can tell Mark, Mark, when you write the gospel, please make sure you highlight all the details of my failure because I want people to see that anything that I become is by the grace of God. We got a place to bring our failures. But there's still something that we must do. Not only must we acknowledge our failures, not only must we uh, plunge our failures in, in, into the grace of God in Christ, but we need to repent. We need to turn from it. I like this. Days later, Jesus is resurrected. Mark 16, verse 7, Mary encounters the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus says this to Mary, go tell the disciples and Peter. Jesus highlights Peter. Jesus knows. Jesus knows where Peter is. Jesus knows what Peter's feeling. And I think Jesus is telling Peter two things by highlighting his name. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter, I love you. I love you. But right now, I also have to group you outside of disciples. You need to be restored. And so the disciples, they go back to Galilee. They wait for Jesus. And you can read about this in John 21. Peter goes back to fishing. He knows he's thrown it all away. He knows he has no business being a disciple. He's gone back to his old life, and Jesus shows up on the beach. And I love the scene because when, again, Peter realizes that Jesus on the beach, this guy loves to get out of boats and recklessly get to Jesus. And he swims to him. He's not like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes. But Jesus is on the beach. I'm going to get to him. And Jesus has already prepared a fire because what he's doing is he's recreating that scene that night when Peter's warming himself around the fire. And now three times, he's just like three times Peter denied him, three times Jesus is going to ask him, Peter, do you love me? Because what Jesus is doing, and some of you might think, this is cruel. Why is, why is Jesus just kind of rubbing uh, Peter's nose in this? It's because Jesus is like a surgeon. And the way that he is going to uh, deal with this wound, he's going to open it up so he can heal it. And what he's going to do is walk Peter through repentance. Because without repentance, there's no change. Peter? 
do you love me more than these other guys? Peter, everything in him wants to say, Jesus, you know I love you the most. He can't say that. All Peter says is, Jesus, I love you. You know it. And in not saying, I love you the most, and he, he, he's repenting of his self-righteousness, he's repenting of all his self-importance, because now instead of looking at himself as the promise keeper, he is now looking to Jesus as the promise keeper. And Peter's life, his identity, his righteousness, it's no longer based on, on what a good promise keeper he is. It's all about Jesus and Jesus' promise keeping. You love me, Peter. I love you, Jesus. You see, because promise keeping, even as important as it is, that is still something that won't save us. Even if we would somehow have the courage to die for Jesus, that's not going to save us. And if you think it will, you will become a promise breaker just like Peter. Because the people who best keep their promises are the ones who understand that Jesus loves me, not because I'm so faithful to him, but because he's so faithful to me. And I don't save myself by, by, by dying for him. I'm saved because Jesus dies for me. And see, therefore, we don't have to be the hero because Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the intercessor. Jesus is the one who stands in the gap. It's his life for me. I love this. Every time Jesus says, do you love me, Peter, he ends it with, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Who feeds the sheep? Who is the shepherd of God's flock? Jesus. What Peter is hearing Jesus say, Peter, be like me, be like me, be like me. You messed up, dude. You blew it, but I still believe in you. I still believe you, Peter, can walk my walk and become just like me. And he says that to you. He believes in you. He believes in you. I don't know how you respond to failure. I don't know what failure has done to you. I'm sure some people in this room right now think failure has put your life on plan B or maybe even plan C. You think that because you failed that you're never going to be the same again, that your, your, your marriage is never going to be the same again, that your future is never going to be the same again. But here's what we learned from Peter, that if you can own up to your failure, all of it, and you take that failure and you plunge it into God's grace and then you repent of it, you turn from it and you turn back towards Christ. Your life will never be on plan B or plan C. It will be on plan A with your failure included in that. So this morning, I don't wanna just hear a sermon. 
The power is in the response. If God is putting his finger on something in your life where you're like, yep, I failed, I blew it. You got a place to bring it. I got the mikvah bowls out. If you want to come up, this is a, a, a place of repentance where we come and, and, and we repent and we wash and we plunge ourselves into God's grace. I'm serving communion over here. Today I want to serve communion for only the people who right now feel like total failures. But you want to take your failure, whatever it is, and you want to plunge it into the grace of God. This is a church where we don't judge each other because of our failures or look down on each other. But we believe that we can come clean, bring them to Christ, and repent and let Christ take our failure and use it for greatness. Let's pray. Only the gospel, Jesus. Religion tells us we have to perform and get it right, and if we don't, there's no hope. The gospel says we can't get it right. But we have a place to bring it. Or God makes it right. Through that makes us whole. God, may we be a gospel church that deals with our failures in a gospel way. In Jesus' name.